Maybe if Rass had this thesis in 2014, somebody could have thrown it on the table and say, no effing way, you're going to get rid of half of this station. Look at what this station means. It's all right here. Maybe things would have been different. I don't know. And I think that's important for these stations to document why they are important. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. Hello, everybody. Erica Klein here. And I'm Paul Reismandel. This week, we are taking a look at college radio history, specifically a multifaceted project about student radio station WRAS at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Our guest, Andreas Preuss, just completed a master's thesis on the topic. Left of the dial, right on the music, 50 years of Georgia State FM radio. Andreas, thanks for joining us on Radio Survivor. Well, it's great to be here, and I really do appreciate what you're doing for, as you said, the love of radio and sound. Thanks so much. So, well, let's start. What what sparked this interest in researching college radio? Well, you know, like like you guys and, and a lot of the people that, you know, subscribe to your, your podcast and your, your content here, you know, I was a college radio DJ back in the 80s. Um, I went to Loyola University in New Orleans, which had a closed circuit AM station, which was you could only pick it up in the dorms. Uh, but Tulane, right next door, had WTUL, the progressive alternative in New Orleans. I mean, this was a pow- another powerhouse station in the southeast, very similar to WRAS. But in New Orleans, the home of jazz and blues and Zydeco, a little bit of a different spin. But I worked at WTUL for, you know, a couple of months and they were kind enough to have, you know, Loyola students on the air. And then I did another shift in the uh, early 90s where I just, I knew the general manager and he said, yeah, come please, come by and do, do another show. So I had this foundation of college radio. I love radio. My first job was in shortwave radio in New Orleans at WRNO. So I had this radio background. Ooh, and, yeah, okay, and, we, we got to pause there. What, what were you doing in shortwave radio? Well, at the time, Jennifer, uh, WRNO, which stands for the, We're the Rock of New Orleans, um, Joe Costello was a ham radio enthusiast. And, you know, ham operators are just radio nuts. Um, I say that in a good way. Um, and he loved shortwave radio. So he, I don't know how, got a license to operate a shortwave station out of New Orleans. At the time, it was the only non-commercial, non-religious, non-government non-NGO station in the world, because most shortwave radios are tied to a government. Um, and we were playing, uh, you know, rock and roll, New Orleans jazz, CBS news. It was just fascinating. And then you'd get, you know, the QL, the QSL cards came in from around the world. So you really were broadcasting globally from New Orleans. I mean, this wow. is something many people don't know about. Wait. We will certainly have to circle back to to the to, to to hear more from you about this incredible shortwave radio station uh, later on in the hour. Yeah, yep. definitely. So, so then you have this radio past, um, and then so then recently you decide that you want to start researching college radio at WRAS. What what sparked the interest in doing that specific project? Well, another another quick thing about college radio, and, and you find this in media a lot, that people connect through the job. You know, like at, at TV stations, local news stations, people are married. They meet their spouses there. I mean, these relationships are very strong because of the intensity of the work. You know, you're if you're a journalist, you're working weird hours, weekends, overnights, 
holidays, you know, anything can go. That's where I met my wife in a local newsroom in New Orleans. And she worked at WRVU at Vanderbilt. So we Ah. had this instant connection. You know, look, I just have to say, I think that's what is our, was our biggest bond at the time. Now she's from New Orleans as well, but that, you know, she had the RVU experience. I had the Tulane experience. That was one of our first bonds, you know, in college radio. So once again, it's now part of my life, um, which is, which is kind of cool. Um, at Georgia State, I was going part-time. I was at CNN. I was a super supervising producer. I recently retired after 25 years. So I couldn't work at the radio station because I knew as soon as I moved to Atlanta in 96, I knew I wanted to work there, but you had to be a student, which I think is, which is fine. There are, there may be some issues with that in, in continuation and, and, you know, why is college radio suffering because they don't let alums in some, you have to be a student. There's no community people involved. Sometimes that, that works against a station. I'm sure you've discussed that in the past. But once I left CNN, I went full time. And then bada bing, bada boom, I'm, I'm doing a shift on WRAS. So here I oh, am so in was the that, booth. Was that in the back of your mind all this time that if I, hmm, like someday maybe I'll be a student here and I can be on the air? Well, you know, a lot of people said when I interviewed them for my thesis, the reason they went to Georgia State was to work at WRAS. Plain and simple. They didn't go there for history or physics or no, they went there to work at the radio station because as the thesis points out, this was a, a training ground of the highest order for students to become either professional broadcasters or to work in the record industry. I mean, this was a well-worn path. So for me, yes, it was a big part of it. Also, I got a degree in history, which I was always fascinated with history and context is very important as a journalist to know that. And as a journalist, you're often focused on the who, what, when, where, and why. Um, but when you start putting in history, historical terms like race, class, gender, it's a whole different way of looking at history. And that's what Georgia State brought to the table for me. So I found myself at WRAS and I was like, once again, I'm back in college radio in my mid fifties. That's pretty dang cool. Yeah. And how did you know, you have such an interesting perspective since you've been working in professional media all this time. What was that like to be back in college radio? And, um, uh, you know, did you have, was it liberating? Was it frustrating? <laughs> all of the above? You know, I'd probably say it was all of the above because, you know, WRS has a, you know, for lack of a better word, a sordid history with the GPB agreement, quote unquote, and there's still a lot of bad blood with the alumni. Yeah, Georgia Public Broadcasting is now utilizing part of the airtime on WRAS for public radio programming. Correct. And it was uh, it was mishandled. The students didn't know. They were just told one day out of the blue on the last day of the semester. and, uh, you know, it's just it's just a, an odd place. It's kind of a shell of its former self, mm. though it still does broadcast on the FM dial from 7 p.m. until 5 a.m. And then they have the HD signals. That's fine. So approximately what time, uh, what year was the public radio deal that took away half the airtime for this college radio station? That was 2015. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was uh, it was it was bungled. 
I mean, you know, they just didn't bring into the student, bring in the students. They didn't inform the student media commission. They didn't inform the general public, not that they needed to, but there were protests, there were lawsuits. It got nasty. Um, and it's a, that's not a, that's, that's a familiar story for radio survivor, uh, longtime listeners and readers, the, yes, the, the, yes. this, it, it's not the only station that this has happened. Yeah. Right. And we, and we did have, um, a bunch of coverage about this in 2015. We'll put a link in the show notes to, to <clears> some <throat> of those pieces. So yeah, that's interesting to be at WRAS following kind of this big change. Um, you know, we have a lot to talk about in this mm. hour. So um, I think I think something really interesting about your project is that you had an on-the-air component to it where you were doing a radio show that was working through a lot of the ideas of your thesis. Um, so maybe talk a bit about this, about the public – you did a public affairs show on WRAS. Um, talk to us about what that show was all about. Well – Unlike many people that work in college radio, at least as students, you know, these are these are, you know, people between the age of 18 and 21. Usually Georgia State does have a it does skew a bit older because it was actually Georgia State College was a uh, night school uh, tied to Georgia Tech. And you would go to Georgia State College, then go to Tech. And it had a a lot more women getting nursing degrees and, and dental hygienists. And then you had, you know, men that were getting their degrees, but all after hours. So it was kind of started. It's, it's not your typical college. That's what kind of makes it cool as well that, you know, so your student body's a bit older. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just an interesting place where this all came together that college radio my perspective as, as being a journalist and being a, in cable news and, and local television news for 35 years, um, you know, I can kind of see that, look, media, I, I lived the story myself. CNN has been bought and sold several times. The local station I worked at had been bought and sold several times. In the media world, as you know, and as your listeners probably know, stations are bought and sold every day. St- uh, staff is hired and fired every day. All right, I may be exaggerating, but you get my drift. So my point of view is like, you know what, if a station, and I think it it had become, this is a harsh word to say, it it, it was no longer relevant to the audience because of this scandalous scandal that happened. Um, You know, the audience was kind of burned out. All right. They're not listening anymore, you know, because they're protesting. Um, So, but my perspective was like, look, I mean, the station may have become irrelevant. The students were, they had lost their musical cutting edge. The scene, college radio was kind of co-opted, as you know, by by commercial, you know, modern rock, alter, adult alternative. That was in the early 90s. It just was kind of running on, you know, just remote control. These are not pleasant things to say, to admit, but I saw it myself. And I'm like, you know, the lady that ran Georgia Public Broadcasting, Taya Ryan, I work with her at CNN. She's a media professional. And media professionals, their job is to buy other media, to expand their empire. That's what they do. So I don't fault her. And that's the perspective I have. Of course, many people hate her. There's still pictures of people shooting the bird at her and, you know, these uh, public meetings that they had. Uh, You know, I think it's all the Georgia State president at the time, really, 
made this deal for what? I mean, it's just, you know, we don't need to get the weeds on this thing. But with that perspective, I'm like, why was he doing this? You know, plus I'm a, I'm a journalist, so I have an invest, you know, investigative side to me. So the thing during the pandemic, guys, was my thought along with the student media director, and this is just a thought, not necessarily going to happen, but during crisis situations, global crisis situations, that GPB may say, you know what, we want the rest of the station because at seven o'clock, we're doing big news on the pandemic and wear a mask, don't wear a mask, the back and forth, the whole confusion thing, that at seven o'clock, all of a sudden a metal show comes on to their signal. So that's like, hmm, maybe those kids don't know what they're doing. Now, you know, the station did go into lockdown and it was on remote control, like many stations, college stations around the country, campuses were closed. This is in mid-March. Um, and we had a meeting about how do we, you know, how do we program the station? Of course, you know, my being a media professional, my also having resource resources of, you know, microphones and mixing boards, because I'm, you know, I'm an audio enthusiast. Um, I pitched the idea of at seven o'clock, we come out and do an hour of public affairs programming. This is news and information for Georgia State students, staff, faculty, and administrators. It mm. was narrow casting because I didn't want to come out at seven o'clock to, oh, it's those college kids playing that wacky music. Me, it's not my station. <laughs> it's a Georgia State station. I get it. But my programming initiative, because I am basically a programmer as well, because I've been in, in the business a long time, I thought, well, let me just interview from home on an audio device with a mixing board, you know, Georgia State uh, players, you know, the dean of the uh, School of Public Health, the law school dean, the, the, the dean of students, the provost, speaking strictly about Georgia State, their reaction to the COVID and the pandemic and the lockdown. But it's also a broader thing because I am a journalist. So these these are questions that also could relate to just anybody listening to WRAS. And that, the ratings went up. The ratings that, went wow. up, they told me. Yeah, that's, that's really exciting because – um, as someone who loves community public affairs media, and I love news as well when it's when it's well done, um, it's it's thrilling to hear about uh, volunteer-run news and public affairs being used during an emergency to share information and news with the community. Um, from this college radio station, as it was transitioning in the evening. Uh, from the from what I'm assuming is like an NPR based, Correct. like you, I bet you probably uh, if I'm <laughs> go out on a limb and say you're probably uh, coming right out of uh, all things considered the national mm -hmm. public radio, you know, a national public yeah. radio show that people are very familiar with uh, to come out of that into the local coverage of, of what's going on on your college campus for your college community. It's very exciting. It was, and it was important. I mean, at the end of the day, this is important information. Look, the whole pandemic thing was bungled. I use that word again. You know, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Get a shot, don't get a shot. Go to school, don't go to school. I mean, it was back and forth, back and forth. There's a lot of confusion. And just trying to clarify that with the administrators. Now, I'm a student, so I go to the school. So I, sorry, I just dropped my phone, but I go to the school where this is happening. I'm not an outside journalist working at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution or whatever. I'm a student. 
So I can ask questions that are very probing and very immediate and intimate because I go to school there, you know, and I'm a, you know, 55 plus year person, old person who's been in the business 35 years. So they were not, these were not softball interviews about, oh, everything's great. You're changing air filters and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we, I asked the dean of students, you know, what if a student refuses to wear a mask? What are you going to do? You know, is there going to be a confrontation, right? Or is, are you expecting the teachers to handle that confrontation? Or do you just send the student to the police, uh, you know? And I also asked them, this is an open carry campus. You can carry a gun on campus, right? Okay. If you have, you know, if you have the uh, permit. What if a guy pulls out a gun and says, I'm not wearing a mask, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was, these were very difficult times for, for you know, faculty. And to have somebody, you know, kind of digging at you. You know, I'm just doing my job. Was, is this programming that you produced at at the start of the pandemic in the United States? Uh, is it archived? It is, um, but it's not accessible yet. Um, it's going to be part of the Georgia State COVID collection. Um, you know, I did 40, 50 interviews there. I would break them into half hours with a break in between for a ID station ID Um so I did probably 50 or 60 of these things. And like I said, some were very uh, intense and some were kind of like, you know, just your kind of typical uh, interviews with people. But it was exciting and I, I love doing it. And, I, you know, I was look, I work in cable news. So ratings, you live and die by the ratings book sometimes. So I, I reached out to somebody at GPB at Georgia Public Broadcasting and said, you know, just wondering because they, they program my show Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 7 o'clock. And then Tuesday and Thursday, there was a, uh, a like a poetry show, which was very cool. And then, you know, the music really after 8 o'clock returned to the, you know, the crazy college rock. Um, and she, a Georgia GPB lady said, yeah, within the first week you had 250, then you had 500, then you had 1,000. I mean, all within a month. So people were continuing to listen because that's the crucial point at, at WRIS that seven o'clock when that clock hits, you've got a captive audience, yeah. right? You got the, you got the N, the NPR people there. They're listening in their cars. Atlanta's famous for traffic. Of course, during the pandemic, there was no traffic, but you know what I mean? That is a crucial point to keep the audience going because the people that tune into college radio are doing it for a specific reason, but there's also people that click it off at seven o'clock. Our plan was working. Yeah, that's really, that's really cool that you were able to figure out a way to provide this important public service information for the campus, but also provide a bridge between the public radio programming and the college radio programming. Um, so that was, that was one show that you did. I know that you also did a show, you know, more focused on your thesis project that's about college radio history can you talk about the development of that second show and did it come later after you'd been doing the public affairs show well probably before the lockdown in march i started doing i was doing regular rotation just kind of playing you know there it was it's the zeta it's automated you press a button it's, it's just not a lot of fun you know it's like who's curating this me or a computer right so, you know, look, they got tens of thousands of records there. Vinyl, people, vinyl. And look, I'm a vinyl junkie. 
you know, people of a certain age, we grew up with this stuff. That was our media before CDs, even cassette tapes. Um, so here I am kind of holding these records. I mean, they're just, they're like ancient artifacts, man. They are just, this is the U2 record they played. This is the Pink Floyd record they played. This is the Generation X. This is the B-52s. This is the record they played in 1978 or 79 with the stickers on it. Amazing. And the written written words about don't play this. And somebody would scratch it off and write something else. I was like, man, this is so cool because my own collection, I don't have that. You know, I don't write on my records, right? But every radio station, that's how they categorize these things. The music director writes their notes. The program director writes their notes on the record cover. So I'm like, wow, this is, you know, why is this stuff it's, it's sitting in a closet collecting uh, dust? So let me clean these things off and start a program where we play the vinyl, right? That was my first kind of like, let's play the vinyl. And that kind of developed into, really, that developed into my thesis because I was lost. I was a lost little lamb. What am I going to do? And you know, and, and that's that kind of pushed me in that direction. And Andreas, were you sharing this vinyl, your love for vinyl, with uh, any of the other students uh, at this radio station? You know, this is something that is, to me, one of the proudest moments is showing somebody who's never queued a record how to queue up a record. I mean, just showing them how to do it. They want to know. And yeah, did that several times. Look, students come in, they got their Spotify playlist, they plug their phone in. It's, it's offline. So it's, you know, it's not, you know, the whole kind of rights and clearances issues. Or they have a, they pre I mean, there's, you know, it's like, that's, that's not that I like to, what, what is this record? I've never heard this. But look, it's been played a thousand times. It must be good. And I played it and I was like, all right, it's good. Or it wasn't, you know, RAS had become very interesting. And I found this out in the thesis. It was being programmed in the early 80s to their typical Georgia State student, which was a 27 year old female. Hmm. That's their that was their target. Right. So groups like, you know, uh, a squeeze and you two and the police and John Wesley Harding and everything but the girl, that kind of not hard college rock, a bit softer edged, a bit more melodic, a bit more soulful. You know, this they would have an industrial show or a punk show, but that'd be in the that'd be in the later hours. That'd be after nine o'clock, really. So a, a, the bulk of their collection was this type of music. I mean, you didn't find a huge punk section or huge industrial section. It was this curated, targeted. 27 year old female music which i'm not a 27 year old female so a lot of this music sorry i just don't like it so it was their assumption about as a former college radio or well as a current college radio dj this was their assumption about what a 27 year old female might might like um you know because certainly many of us women in college radio listen to a wide range of things including harder edge stuff um uh, what I'm, you know, what I'm really fascinated with is, you know, you're talking about this conversation that happens on the records. So I know you were very interested in that. Were you reading some of that over the air? Because it seems like this was kind of the spark for your thesis. Like when you right. saw these records and this history. That and Jennifer, when you say conversations on these records, you're referring to the to the written marks that former staffers or students at the college radio station had had put on the record uh, sleeves to to comment on 
on yeah. the music, right? Handwriting and and often, you know, having been in college radio for so long, I know that this can be back and forth debates that are, you know, in people's handwriting and people crossing things out and getting irritated. Um, and and this is a part of college radio history that I don't think has been documented all that much. I know that, um, um, you know, I know at least one station that has printed, um, has made copies of some of these reviews and posted them on their website. But um, I don't think there's been that much work to really talk about this kind of rich, these rich conversations. So, so that seemed to be very energizing for you, Andreas. So is that something you talked about on your show was these conversations? Well, of course. <laughs> <is the> <laughs> um, I mean, you'd have to be a fool not to, but that being said, you know, you could just play the records and be done with it, but that doesn't really bring the record to life. The cover does. I mean, that is the interesting part of the project to me, because it's almost like the history is being rewritten or written over. Um, because, like I said, if somebody wrote something and then somebody else scratched it out and wrote something else, that's a that's a rewriting or reworking of that sentence. All, all fascinating to me as a historian. But reading this stuff on air, absolutely. I would read the description the music director wrote about the band at the time, which no longer is valid. Nobody even remembers that, you know, calling, you know, a certain band hard rock that's now soft rock or, or something. You know, you just see this change over the decades. Um, some of the pithy comments, right, that are written by the students. You know, one of them uh, on Lou Reed's a Lou Reed album, it said, don't play heroin. Right. It had. You know, on the record, it was grease penciled out. And I'm like, but it's just heroin. It's not like, well, they didn't play heroin because of the drug reference. Um, and then somebody on the cover drew a rail, like a railroad track, like heroin rails. You know, you're doing a rail, right? They drew that on the cover. I was like, that's cool. I mean, that's not just written. It's art. Um, and then you had records signed. I mean, uh, Pylon, uh, Vanessa from Pylon, I talked to her. She signed the record, you know, 40 years ago. Um, you had Camper Van Beethoven signed records. You had uh, a lot of these signed records where they would write, the artist would write something on the record as well. So all these factors came into play. And I think that's what um, made the show different, as well as what was really interesting, guys, is I would take the records and post them. I like thumb through them and then post them on the social media feed that I created for 88.50. That's the name of the the program because Georgia State Radio is 88.5. 88.50 references the 50-year anniversary, which is mm. 2021. And while I was doing those records, alumni, and I put on the alumni page, Facebook page, it's, oh my God, I played that record. I see my initials on that oh, record. Cool. <laughs> like, that is awesome. I mean, if you haven't seen this record that you played as a 19-year-old 40 years ago, and there it is, and some other guy's playing it, I don't know. That's it's that's a pretty dang cool uh, realization, I guess. I've seen that when I've, um, you know, helped host college radio reunions. Like I've I've seen alums who come in looking for the records they used to play. So I totally get what you're saying. This connection between seeing the artifact, like the actual, you mm -hmm. know, not just like this particular album, but the actual album that that somebody used to hold in their hand and play. Um, yeah, it's amazing to captivate those memories. So 
So the show, in the show, you were playing some of these records from the RAS library that students weren't necessarily playing. It sounds like students weren't really playing vinyl from the vinyl library. You're also sharing anecdotes about station history. I know that you did a ton of interviews with RAS alumni, and and it, it seemed like these episodes ended up having a focus to them that ended up becoming uh, chapters of your thesis. So it's a very different kind of master's thesis where your radio show content, you know, becomes the thesis itself. And was that, um, did you get pushback for that? Cause that's, that's really interesting and cool the way you've incorporated the radio show into the work of the thesis. And I'm wondering if that was something that, that people in your department, um, were surprised by, or, um, if it's something that, uh, people had done before, if they were open to it, talk a bit about that. Well, you know, what do you go to school for to impress the teachers or to impress yourself or to impress your neighbors? It's all of the things. I mean, you know, I was a European history major because my family, my parents are from Germany. They lived through world war II in Berlin as you know, they're still alive there in their mid eighties. The Berlin Wall was fascinating to me. I'd been to East Germany to travel to West Berlin dozens of times between before the wall came down in 1989. So I was very interested in German history post-Berlin Wall, right? And that whole landscape has changed. Um, but I was really doing that for my professor, which is a weird kind of, you know, you want to impress your teachers because you want to do a great job and that's what they like. So maybe that's what you should do because you have a connection to it. And then I met with a, a different professor who said, Andreas, what do you love? Uh, I like the Berlin. No, no. What do you love doing? I said, well, I work at the college radio station. He goes, that's what you should do. Do it, do it. And I'm like, whoa, bing, light bulb went off. I, I talked to my, my German history professor. He's like, do it, do it, do it. He's writing a book on the love parade in Berlin. So he's into techno music and all that. It's one of my biggest supporters as well. So the department was, you know, I, I kind of made a 360 in my last uh, two or three semesters. Um, no, it's like, so, so now all of a sudden you're a media historian? Yeah, <laughs> I guess I am, which is also good for my business because, you know, I am a journalist. So to be a media historian just kind of makes sense. But I was lost in that kind of quagmire of academia and doing some big headed project about this and that and the other thing that would change the, the course of human history. But, you know, what's fun about that, right? So college radio, that's my, that's my thing. That's what I did. They were supportive. Interestingly, Jennifer, that I pitched a digital thesis. Now what this is, is something that would be a podcast or a website or for me, radio programs. So, you know, this is still a, a, a things that are being developed on, on college campuses that, you know, if you just teach a student how to teach, well, guess what? There's no jobs. The pay is low. Tenure will become a thing of the past. So good luck with that. Now, if you teach a student how to teach, how to be a historian and how to edit and how to light something, if you want to do a documentary, that gives a, that gives the student more skills. I'm totally into multifaceted uh, skills as a, as an employer or employee. So, you know, the digital thesis would have been, was these radio programs. Now we're dealing with higher ed. There's got to be a written component. There's, they got to hold something dead in their hand, right? Paper. 
Um, so I did a written component, which, which was basically my thesis was basically my scripts of my radio program. And, you know, I had to, you know, it broadcasts as one sentence is, you know, several words long in academia. One sentence is a entire paragraph. So I kind of had to tweak it a bit to make it more academic. Um, I think it turned out well. You turned and, some of your periods into commas. <laughs> exactly. That's not what I'm trained to do. Right. There are no commas. Um, a, yeah. Very different kind broadcast. of writing. Yeah. Broadcast. Right. And that was a struggle, too, for me in going back to academia after, you know, 35, 40 years to, to write academic papers. Very difficult for me. You know, so that's is, what I did. It, it's so cool. And, you know, we had um, an Andreas Preuss. Um, you know, you wrote this master's thesis about college radio history at WRAS at Georgia State University. We, we've done some episodes of Radio Survivor talking about academic podcasts and scholarly podcasts. And, and there's a push among a lot of people to, um, to have, you know, academia accept some of this work as scholarly um, and have things like peer-reviewed scholarly podcasts. So, you know, having your thesis um, that has this digital component, it fits with that idea that, you know, our scholarly work can be so much more than pen and paper or, you know, a typewritten um, thesis. So I, I think that's great. Um, I'd love to get into, you know, some of the stuff you learned in, in reading your thesis. I found some interesting stories from alumni and, um, I'm hoping you can tell us the one about LSD because I thought that was perhaps one of the most hilarious anecdotes that, that I'd heard about college radio. Yeah, that was, at I think, Washington Lee, um, a lady who was, I think she said she was one of the first female students, I think at WNL. Um, and she said a guy she knew worked at the college station there. This is not in Atlanta, not at w, even at WRS. He needed a uh, somebody to, to babysit him while he tripped and did college radio. So she was his handler. She'd keep him on track. She'd keep him away, I, you know, from wandering off out the out the control room. But that, I mean, that was an interesting story. Not related to WRAS, kind of more related to just her her initial experience in college radio, right? Um, these type of stories come out. Now, look, I'm a cable news guy. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, look, I, I like to put that out there. You know, academics, not so much, right? <laughs> I've read an entire book about sex that doesn't even mention sex. I mean, it's like, what? give me some details here about what they did in Indonesia, the colonial blah, blah, blah. No, 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 it's not, it's not a book about sex, but it's got sex in the title, whatever. So some of these stories I had to take out because they were either uh, seemed, uh, you know, anti-female or uh, misogynist or homophobic um you know some i left in that were racial i mean there was a lot of racial tension at georgia state in the 90s that are very well documented and i'm not an atlanta person i grew up in new orleans i didn't know even what was going on in the radio dial in atlanta you know who were the competitors who you know blah blah you know when i moved there i got that but you know finding out these stories about georgia state they're not pleasant, some of them. And the alumni, especially the ones from the 70s, they don't want to hear it. Everything was beautiful. We loved each other. We were like the Rainbow Coalition. So what was you the know, nature we were, of, of this, of the conflict? You mean with the 70s people? 
Well, I mean, no. So you alluded to that there was some there was conflict uh, in the eighties. I yeah. guess. Uh, what, what was the nature of it? Well, the first conflict was the uh, the tension with Georgia Public Broadcasting, which is an overriding "we're going to lose the station" issue. And the first takeover attempt was in 1983 when they applied to get a permit to build the, the tower that eventually in 1987 would broadcast at 100,000 watts, making the station the most powerful college radio station in the country at the time. That was a scepter of you're all going to lose this. You screw up. You say the F word. You do something stupid. They're going to come and get us. All right. That was kind of this, this kind of overriding cloud at the station because of this GPB attempt. It failed. They beat them back. Another attempt was made uh, in 2008, 2009. So they always, this was, they always wanted this, this station. Now that's more of a kind of big headed thing. Um, the uh, racial conflict, that was what I mainly alluded to. Georgia State was a majority white uh, student body until it wasn't. And you could see, and I charted this with the uh, demographics of Georgia State, you could see that the white majority going down and the African majority going up, African-American, and they would challenge. I mean, I spoke to alumni, black alumni, who said the reason I went to WRAS is to force them to play black music. Mm, okay. Not what they think is black music, but what is actually black music. And this is in the late 80s. And then, of course, hip hop exploded, especially in Atlanta. How could you ignore, you know, outcast? I mean, it's just impossible. And the white kids look up. That's I am a white person. I am a white college rock person. The Pixies, the, the, the U2s, and the uh, Violent Femmes. That's my music. So if somebody's going to come in and say, all right, we're going to play Run DMC and, you know, whatever. Run DMC is pretty tame. But some of these other groups, there was also just the national conversation about rap and hip hop being violent music. I mean, the Rodney King verdict. I mean, this is all racial tension big time in the early 90s. And the black students had run-ins with the white students. Uh, there was an issue where one of the general managers had to quit. He was accused of, uh, you know, sexual harassment, A, and then, uh, you know, racist remarks. Um, not he personally, but the station he was managing, which was WRIS. You know, I wrote in the uh, thesis that somebody put up a Tupac Shakur a poster after he was the poster, you know, once he, he died. And somebody wrote, um, you know, shoot him. You know, and it was like, that's very insensitive. In the control room, they had this poster. Well, maybe, you know, college students, I mean, you go into a, a college radio, there's going to be pithy stuff all over. Just go in the bathroom and see the stuff written on the walls. Maybe some kid thought, oh, that's funny. But to an African-American student, it was not very funny. Mm -hmm. So these type of these are the type of issues that did come out. And a lot of people didn't know that this existed because, you know, like I said, the 70s alum, everything was beautiful. They were like, Andreas, what are you? You're trying to find some scandal. You're trying to dig. I know you're right. a journalist. But, but of course, you need to be. As yeah. you pointed out, the 70s student body was more homogenous as well, Correct. right? And so, Correct. you know, indeed, it, it sort of is almost reflective of, of the way that um, new understandings, if we, if we could put it that way, uh, and, and, you know, reflections uh, on sort of racial makeup, demographic makeup of, of all sorts of, of different sorts of enterprises and, and entities, uh, they do change over time. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it is about, you know, questioning what privilege, I guess, um, those white students had, you know, by virtue of being, 
won a majority, uh, maybe a very large majority at the time in the 70s, as well as not even having to think about that, right? <laughs> Never having to consider what it meant or why, uh, you know, white students made up the majority and why they made up the majority of the station in particular. So it's it's interesting that you, that you, that you um, had that feedback, you know, and I wanted to kind of continue on this a little bit. You said kind of earlier in the interview talking about uh, WRAS, this radio station at Georgia State uh, University, that um, right, you had the sort of these takeover attempts, right, where Georgia public broadcasting seemed to be interested in in having its very powerful frequency to uh, to further and, and broaden its reach uh, in, in in this in Atlanta in, in around Atlanta, Georgia, and you know, and you sort of alluded at the earlier in the program that. There was a period of, of I'm not sure quite what the right word is, but malaise, if you will. Uh, am I characterizing that, that correctly? That sort of predated, I guess, this this most recent agreement in, in 2014 where uh, Georgia Public Broadcasting actually now uses the signal for uh, the day part. Am I, is that kind of what you meant to, to, to project, what, that, what the, um, the mood, the tenor was around the station at that time? Uh, absolutely. And and thank you for correcting the, the buyout or the agreement was in 2014, not 2015, like I said earlier. Um, you know, a 1983 takeover attempt, a 2008 takeover attempt, both beaten back, both with both with uh, administration support. The administration beat these attempts back. Hmm. 2014, nope, they made the deal. Hmm, what changed? I don't know. Legacy, Atlanta, gentrification. It kind of fits the narrative of, of the of the former Georgia uh, state president um but yeah it was i described it as a black cloud and the station what you know what is different than wras where i worked recently and wtol wras was run very professionally you know they had record service they had magazines they had in record stores they had end caps as heard on wras the students went on to careers in radio or or record companies it was run very professionally they had they tried to get ratings. They didn't, but they had some feedback from the audience. I mean, this is run very professionally. So if you're run very professionally, the reason I was told they did that is to prove to Georgia State we can do this. Because the whole point of GPB's takeover is like, these kids, they're going to screw it up. You're going to give them 100,000 watts. They're going to screw it up. Give it to us. We're the responsible party here, not those college students. So it got back to that that kind of cloud, that malay. That, you know, if we screw up, they're going to take us. They're going to give, we should not give them any ammunition to take our station from us, from the student body. Because if you say the seven dirty words, or you reference, I'm smoking a joint in the control room, or I'm tripping on acid, or, you know, I've got a dog in here, you know, that's ammunition. And they didn't do any of that. They totally stayed the course, and yet the station was still taken over. So I think that's the black cloud that I described that was since 1983 had every GM knew it. The staff knew it. It was very well spoken about. Don't screw it up. And do you think that what's the result of that? Do you think that made for better programming, less adventurous programming? Um, and what's that like if you're operating uh, in this place of fear? Well, you know, fear, I would I'd probably more describe it as paranoia, which is kind of fear-based too, but, you know, that um, 
students were aware of this issue. A very smart lady I spoke to, Catherine Rye Jewell, a professor at Fitchburg State who's writing a book about college radio. I think it's coming out soon. She said there's a big difference between block programming at col in college radio and specialty show programming. And it was fascinating. I was like, what do you mean by that? In block programming, you can play whatever you want. And, and a perfect example is Georgia Tech's radio station, WREK, famous. Their format is they have no format, right? You could be hearing a Hendrix song, then you could hear Tibetan monk chants, and literally you could hear a dishwasher running for half an hour. That's their tech students. They're wacky like that. Um, but that also allows more freedom for a DJ to play what they want to play, not what the playlist dictates they should play. RAS was a very playlist-driven station because, once again, they wanted to be as professional as possible. That's narrowing. You're narrowing, and we spoke about that fictitious 27-year-old female that was deemed to be their average listener. You're kind of, you are putting yourself in a box. Um, yeah. and, and that block program, and what Dr. Jewell mentioned is that the, that's why they also had these racial tensions because the white students say, well, we play the specials, so that's black music, or we play um, Living Color, that's black music. And they're like, no, it's not. But that's what they thought. So block programming, block programming did allow for more freedom and, you know, just the ability to play what you wanted. Whereas WRIS was pretty rigid. And I even confronted the music director, you know, and she was totally game. I said, you know, they were actually at these college radio conventions um, in New York that they would go to. Um, panels would, would say, you're too rigid. What you're, you're, you're not allowing certain artists on there because they don't fit that genre, that 27-year-old female, more or less. Yes, once again, they had punk shows, industrial shows, reggae shows, all this other stuff. But their core programming initiative was to that 27-year-old female. So if you don't play that type of music, what's up? You know. So, so they were confronted. So DJs, it sounds like um, what you're describing um, to me sounds like freeform where DJs can play whatever they want correct? versus it sounds like at rest, they had a more, more control from programming or the music director, you know, telling DJs what to play that it sounds like that's what you're describing. Yeah. They followed a format and <clears throat> excuse me, each hour you could pick two songs from a pre-approved hmm. uh, selection of music. Oh, wow. Um, and these, but these songs, I mean, these are iconic songs. I mean, if you look at a playlist, you're like, oh, I love all these songs. So it wasn't like they were playing bad music, but you're not going to hear ministry at, you know, 10 a.m., which is probably, look, who wants to hear ministry at 10 a.m.? You're thinking, well, I do. Look, <laughs> I do. I don't know. It, right. I do too. But that's not morning drive, let's say, you know, between 7 and 10 a.m. The ministry doesn't work there. People are just waking. Remember, they're taking that professional atmosphere. Morning drive is people are tired. They want to be entertained. They're easing into their day. So they're going to play everything but the girl or the B-52s. You know, they're not going to play the ministry or something harder edge. So, so, that would come so later. If the students were sort of hewing this line, right, and trying to produce much more professional college rock style programming – modern rock, if you will, and perhaps more adventurous than your typical commercial modern rock uh, station, but otherwise really trying to, to keep the presentation very professional, uh, very acceptable, perhaps, in a way. Um, why is it then that a semi-takeover by Georgia Public Broadcasting was still eventually 
um, eventually successful? Why why uh, were they not able to sort of hold off the loss of the part of the broadcast day, even by sort of uh, you know someone might say playing by the rules? Well, uh, you know, is college radio still relevant? Is college radio still alive? Is radio even alive? I mean, yes, I think we all think that it is. Well, clearly, I mean, clearly Georgia Public Broadcasting thinks it is. Otherwise, they well, wanted, yeah, of course, wanted of the course. signal, right? Well, that, I know. That's, my, yes. that's always yes. my answer when, um, when you hear the PR speak about, oh, you know, it isn't relevant. Well, uh, I mean, that's uh, being said by the people who are trying to take over stations. Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Exactly. Exactly. It's, well, I didn't. Uh, it's not me. But <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, look, like I said, they're, they they kind of got you know, their music wasn't relevant anymore because of and not just radio, but because of algorithms and Spotify and Pandora. And you even saw this in the 90s when the uh, the iPod came out, you know, and you could have a 10,000 songs in your hand. Well, you know, why, why do I listen to radio station? I do because I love you. But, so how, did, but how did they surprised. measure that? How did I mean, that's always my question is that, I mean, we can I hear the propositions, right? Mm-hmm. But any of us can come up with the propositions. Yep. You know, how is it known? Right. You know, it's one thing to say. Uh, it's one thing to claim that, you know, students don't care about radio. It's but, you know, they, they it's another thing, though, to to find the evidence and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious, right? I mean, because I don't know what was the evidence, if any, cited that uh, that there was a disinterest or that the the station was had lost touch. How how was that? How is that seen and and unheard and understood rather than just a, a, an argument of rhetoric? Well, um, that those are my findings. Um, the Georgia State. The, the GPB, Georgia Public Broadcasting Takeover in 2014, was solely a win-win situation. That's how it was sold. It wasn't, we're going to save the day by helping you broadcast or program, you know, more than half the day for you. It wasn't sold like, it was sold as a win-win, that your students will come, can come work at Georgia Public Broadcasting as interns. And we're going to give you this sub-channel on a TV station where you can do uh, Georgia television, Georgia State television. So it was sold as this win-win and $100,000 a year is the contract. Um, to me, that's chicken feed. I mean, they sold, what, WRVU for, what, $3 bucks? I mean, hundred grand a year? I don't know. It just doesn't sound like a good deal. Um, but, yes, the proving of the irrelevance, the relevance. Look, College Radio is not in the ratings. They don't do ratings. So you don't have that proof. I do have some proof that they did have the Birch report, which was another form of ratings that they had in the eighties um, that did show that there, they had more female, older female listeners. That was no. something I saw on a piece of paper that is provable. And- the Andreas, Andreas uh, Preuss, it's yep. fascinating because you've described to us the story where Georgia, the, the radio station at Georgia state university, partly due to a cloud that was hanging over them for years that they could get taken over by the NPR affiliate station and no longer be the, the music programming, the college radio music programming that they had been for decades. This cloud, which was very real and came to fruition in 2015, caused them to a certain extent to be more of a professional radio station, quote unquote professional, which on the one hand certainly benefits students to be run professionally. You learn a lot. It's a wonderful educational opportunity. But on the other hand, it sounds like it 
closed down some of the creative radio opportunities that could have been possible. It, it, it constrained what music was going to get played. And then by the time you get to 2015, that's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're no longer as relevant to student listeners. You're no longer at the cutting edge of music and radio. You're not allowing uh, black students to, to create new, exciting hip hop radio on campus that could change, you know, change the airwaves. It's, it's all, since you're focused on the fictional 27 year old white woman listener, that's, that's who you end up, uh, in, in the audience. Uh, it's, you've now, I mean, is this, is this an unfair characterization of the story you've told to us today on radio survivor? It, it's it's a pretty good summation. Now, now the African-American music, rap, hip-hop, urban, it was called urban music. Actually, in 1989, they started a show called Rhythm and Vibes. And that was contentious. To, that was another contentious story where the black student who spoke to me went to the GM, the white GM, to pitch the show. And the GM said, what? What, do you want to do a show for tall people, short people, white people, red people? He was insulted. So he went to the yeah. dean. Wow. The dean of the freaking university said, I can't believe that your radio station, your general manager told me this when I proposed a show based upon urban music. Well, guess what? They did the show in Atlanta, Georgia, in Atlanta, 1989. So and from that show, the rest of the 90s, let's face it, the biggest show with the biggest amount of listeners was uh, the hip hop show. Yeah. Um, The rhythm and vibes, the bomb. I mean, these shows. But, you know, once again, they were always on the weekends usually weekend nights. Well, that's when people party, but there's a thing called the weekend ghetto as well. That's something you often see in, in, in television stations where a lot of the African-American employees work weekends. It's called the weekend ghetto. Yeah. Um, We, we just, we very recently uh, did an episode of radio survivor about the history of hip hop on commercial radio as well. And that was a familiar, it's a familiar tale mm -hmm. that, that the best earliest hip hop shows were some Sunday nights. Yep, that's and that's it was called the weekend wrecking crew because they would wreck your Monday morning because you stayed up till two a.m. to hear the show, you know that started <laughs> on Sunday night. That's what it was nice. called the weekend wrecking crew. I love so that. It. Yep, that totally fits into that. So the narrative that yeah, the African American thing, the the hip hop music thing was figured out. I mean that became a vital part of WRIS's program, still is today. Somebody but it, yeah, but they had to you know these students had to fight for it, and I and I get that. So. Um, that's, that's the part of narrative, but the, the, you know, the takeover, this black cloud, you know, if you look, when I was, I, I told you at the beginning of this program, I'm a radio nut, but when it came down to where do you want to work? I was told TV's going to pay more, you know, and guess what it does. And it probably still does. If a young person came to you guys and said, Hey, I want to work in radio. You'd say, yeah, go for it. But are you going to have a 40 year career in radio? It's possible. I, but I might becoming... not say that to a young person. You might Thank have a forty-year. You might have a forty-year uh, career in podcasting. Exactly, and that's <laughs> and no, absolutely. But, but, they're, that's but they're the very direction. related. They're actually very related. And absolutely. somebody, somebody absolutely. who works works in right. podcasting, I see well, people, young people coming in, who um, who have uh, college radio experience, and in right. some cases, more recently, have had the opportunity to explore talk programming. And and story based programming in in their college radio environments, and even encouraged to uh, both by their peers and by and by faculty, 
you know, so it, 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 it maybe it's, it's an evolution of radio that we're seeing. As Eric often uh, says, it's all radio uh, when, right. when we're talking when we about the broadcast when of the, sound. When, when their 40-year career in podcasting ends, they're not going to know the difference between podcasting and radio. It's, uh, in, by, you know, in 2060 – it's all it's all the same. Yeah, and we yeah we're increasingly talking about audio and audio and sound is you know exciting to so many people right now and and the jobs are are spread across every industry. Um, Andreas Preuss says, uh, you know, as you think about this whole project, um, I'd just love to know if if you have an idea of what we can learn about the broader history of college radio from the example of RAS. Like, what were you at the end of the project, what what were your big takeaways about college radio? I think um, most college radio stations went through this history. If they were founded, you know, they had a 50-year history or a 35 or 40-year history. The, the whole kind of co-opting of the music, I think you could find that in any market that had a, a great college radio station. Uh, in, in Atlanta, uh, it was 99X that popped up in 92, basically based around Nirvana and the grunge scene. Yeah, they were, they, they, they stole their format. They would never admit that. They just came up with it overnight. Well, they had students working there. They brought them in a room and they played an REM song and said, what, should we play this? And they said, uh, yes, you should play it. So there's this whole co-opting of the sound of college radio by commercial interests. This happened, uh, in the seventies was progressive rock. You know, stations that started playing album cuts or deeper cuts or album sides. It wasn't that kind of college rock as we know now. It was more of that uh, art rock, Pink Floyd, Zappa, Yes, The Grateful Dead. That was more of a 70s thing. Um, so, you know, the music, that issue is one side. The human side, which is the growing pains of young people. I mean, let's face it. These are people between 18 and 20 when I always had to remind myself, these are young people. They're not me. I've been through this stuff. I've been through HR incidents. I've been through hellacious situations with employees or myself, whatever. These are young people, and they're learning on the spot how to deal with big issues because they're broadcasting at 100,000 watts. So these growing pains, like we talked about the racial tension. You could see that across many college campuses. I saw that the, the man that wrote the book about Dartmouth Radio, he flagged that too. Um, I was reading about Kansas, uh, a station in Kansas that had these same growing pains. I think it could it's relatable across many college radio stations that these, what I call growing pains, are things that were happening around the country. And that's also what I kind of explained to these students because getting somebody to talk about the mistakes they made as a 20-year-old that today they'd probably be banned, right? These racial incidents, you would be banned. You'd be on social media, you know, you'd be banned for something. To talk about this, I always say, I always account and said, look, I know this is difficult to talk about, but this did happen 30, 40 years ago, and you were 18. And the guy's like, you're right. And he talked openly, the GM that was fired, who quit because of this issue in the, in the mid-90s. I was like, well, you, you know, after this interview, play this for your kids. Because he today says, I know any issue involving, you know, uh, racial equity and diversity and, and inclusion, I'm totally into it because I lived it in the early, in the mid 90s as a 19 year old. I mean, that's kind of interesting, you know. So some of these discussions, they did turn, you know, it wasn't just what was your favorite song, 
that's an important part, of course, the music. That's what radio really is. But that whole kind of human interaction, human growth, the race, the class, the gender, economy, that's what made this project interesting. I bet you you take any college radio station and apply these terms to it and you would find similarities. Yeah. And- Andres Price, what do you think was lost by uh, WRAS uh, losing this 12 hours of the of the day for the last five or six years? Well, um, who wants to be on the HD signal? I mean, that's really at the end of the day, that's people, the FM dial. I, I think there's a bit of nostalgia to it. And that's another part of the, the station story. Nostalgia is very strong, very strong. I don't have that nostalgic feel for WRS because I didn't go to school there, but talking to these, this is the best time of their lives for some of them. I mean, they met their friends, they met their spouse, they got the job, the dream job in radio or, or a record company because of WRS. The nostalgia was so strong, it was so thick. And that's, I think, when the protest happened, it was all being based on nostalgia. And that is very important to flag because myself, you know, that's how we consume music. And that's how we literally bought music. We'd hear it on the radio, you listen to the DJ, well, that was, and that was, and that was. You'd say, oh, my God, I wrote it. They go to the record store, you buy the record, bring it, put it on the turntable. Transaction complete, right? And they're doing this for free. So, you know, the uh, the takeover and the, the human element, it just kind of seemed to lead to that point. And, you know, at the end of the day, once again, FM is very strong. I think, look, when I, I said, I don't want to do a show before 7. I want to be on the FM. I want my friends to hear me. I want, you know, HD. So they're only on HD radio for the rest of the day. That's what I'm. The the entire, the entire RAS is on HD two. I see. The the control room, the entire control room. And then HD one is the shared signal. Which is also the analog signal. Yeah. Which is also the analog signal. HD three is a purely programmed classic rock uh, station. So the, uh, so the students are on on FM on the analog signal beginning at 7 PM. 7P to 5A. And are they, I, I remember visiting RAS, and I believe when I visited, they weren't streaming online, which was hard to believe at the time. Are they streaming online now? They are through third party. Tune in, you know, these other, these, they're not streaming on their website, no. And there's that, some rights and clearances, uh, da, 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 with the, da, 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 which I, you know, I talked to them about, and, you know, it's they just very, yeah, it's a very unusual yeah. situation and case because, yeah, most college radio stations have their own stream. So I, I found that to be rather interesting when I visited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, and- we're talking about one that's uh, with a, shared a, a, 50, a 50 year history is a with the yeah. that with 100 watts for half the day. That's a that you can understand why some college radio stations would would not have devoted the resources to being on the internet, but we're talking about a big yeah, big station yeah. in this case. But really, like I said, who wants to be on before <laughs> seven p.m.? I don't. I want right. to be on the FM because I have nostalgia for FM. But does my twenty year old twenty one year old daughter? Not at all. She she could care less. She wants to be on the HD signal. They they're not in the business, but that is a thing where students are like you know I want to be on the FM, but I'm limited. And, you know, I can only do a shift because I'm a student. I can't work at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. Um, 7 p.m. is, you know, uh, commuter time and, you know, all that stuff. So that is an issue. And I do think the whole podcasting thing you brought up is a vital thing to tell 
the students, the reason you want to work at a radio station is to sharpen your skills for a career in podcasting. I totally agree. Every major media outlet has a podcasting component. Every, almost every commercial outlet, Sears, I mean, Sears doesn't exist, but you know what I'm saying, Target, I mean, all these things have podcasts. This is a viable profession. You're absolutely 100% right. They're not getting that message because they're struggling for people to work at the station. Mm. And the pandemic and the pandemic didn't help either. You know, when they basically locked uh, locked the students out because the campus was closed, I was saying we're we're uh, we've been deemed vital employees because we're communicating. We're, we're communicating. We should be allowed on campus to do our job to give the people the information. You know, that was not a battle they were going to fight. Yeah, it, it, you know, it really varied tremendously from was, campus yeah. to campus. And it was how... a really challenging year. I mean, sure. you told your story of of challenging the administrators. And it's very funny that I'll just admit my heart went out to the administrators. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no. I used to be a journalist who asked, who tried to ask challenging questions, but it was, that was, it was such a chaotic year and there, the leadership yeah. d- didn't have good information and right. uh, no. And even if we had, uh, even if we had 20 years to prepare for this pandemic, we still would have made gigantic mistakes and, yeah, it's fascinating that you're also in Atlanta. Um, did, mm-hmm. did the Center for Disease Control ever factor into your coverage of the pandemic when you were hot on the story? Well, that's, I mean, they always reverted to the CDC. Whenever, whatever policy they had, that's what they would have. Because that's the University System of Georgia. That's where they get their, their policy from, Yeah, the CDC. They base their policy upon that. So, yeah, it was always a big part of the I had people that used to work at the CDC were are now Georgia State professors. So it's a huge, huge, well, huge about, cross current there. What know? about the what about the story of how what it was like inside the CDC in in the last year of the Trump administration at the beginning of the pandemic? Did that ever factor in? It did. And there was an entire discussion with a uh, a now Georgia State professor who wrote an article based upon the um, anti-Trump people within the CDC and the pro-Trump people and how they were being, uh, you know, treated differently. Hmm. And he wrote an article based on his sources and I interviewed him. It was fascinating. And this is a front page story on the Atlanta Journal Constitution that I kind of ripped off. And I said, oh, look, there's a Georgia State component. So then I talked to the guy. Fascinating interview. So, yes, that whole political thing was very real, very real. And we did we did talk about that. Um, and look, Georgia state, Sonny Perdue, he's a former uh, Georgia governor. He's Republican. He wants to run the university system of Georgia. There's protests against him, I think probably based on his politics. Um, so yeah, these, these are all factors we spoke about and, you know, it was always interesting. They, you know, they do the interview. Who's this Andreas Prius guy that wants to interview? So I don't know, some 19 year old journalism kid. All of a sudden, hello, I'm like this guy from CNN. I'm here to attack you. Yeah. Just not attack. You know what I'm saying? We're going to have a, this is going to be a real interview. Right. <laughs> I wonder, and, then of course, and then of course, word spread Yeah, because you know, they all know each other and that's, and some people are like, yeah, that's, that's what I want to do. I don't want to, this is not a PR conversation. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not employed by Georgia state to make the university look good. It is a great college. I love the place. Did, I think they did a very good job dealing with the pandemic. Not perfect, like you mentioned. Um, but these interviews, they got contentious. And I think that was what people, these are questions people would ask. They're not some mindless, in-the-weeds question about data. 
these are just so do we should we wear a mask again i'm i can't uh i look forward to being able to have the opportunity as just a lay person out here on the internet to listen to the archives of these shows that you produce just because like i said um i love you know i love community media because because you're not working for commercial media you can dig into news stories and sources and have you know and even people who work in commercial media would have liked to have the probably the amount of time that you had with microphones with your sources to actually talk about the issues and to for you at that moment to have had that privilege mm-hmm. to be yeah. broadcasting to the Atlanta audience on these breaking stories during the beginning of the pandemic um it's really exciting so uh it's 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 neat that you have that opportunity and uh well i'm glad it's part of this yeah Yeah. no commercials and i'm glad it's part of this you know time capsule and i'm glad that that so many different um organizations are kind of tending to this history of COVID by putting together materials that were created during COVID, like radio programming and newspapers. Um, so it's great that it's going to be part of that collection. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is just, it's been fascinating, Andreas Price, to, to hear about, you know, you going back to grad school after this long career um, in, you know, commercial media and, and then, doing this history of college radio during RAS's 50th anniversary year and during COVID uh, and putting together interesting programming and the thesis. And I, I guess like another question I would have is, you know, I, I wish that more people um, would take on these projects as students to document their radio station histories. So do you have, you know, quick advice or, you know, reasons why other students should do a project like you did? Well, first of all, don't throw anything away. Uh, and we're fortunate at Georgia State, we have a WRAS radio archives. And this is set six, seven or eight boxes of written materials, printed FCC stuff, playlists, uh, staff notes, uh, newspaper articles. I mean, they, they, they kept this stuff, you know. Um, and then there's also the vinyl collection we spoke about. There's some digital audio. Uh, there's some mini disc and things like that that had air checks. The biggest thing in college radio, as you guys know, I mean, it's the air recording of the air because millions of millions of hours have been done and there's very little show for it because me, like you guys, probably record on a cassette tape and you go home and listen to your show and then that cassette tape gets lost. Nobody else recorded that show. You know, it's not like a TV station that always records their air. College radio doesn't do that. So the first thing is, you know, if you can you know, some type of automated recording system where you just record your air. That's the first thing of archiving. Then don't throw anything away. Even if it looks like junk, it may not be. Bring in a historian. Bring in somebody from your history department that can, or an archivist from the library to help you sort through the massive amount of data or media that's in a college radio station. And, you know, even from the way the stickers are put on the doors or you know, where the sofa's located. I mean, these are images you need to capture and then preserve on the digital media, right? We all have stories about the college radio sofa. WRIS had them too. Um, you know, this type of stuff and, and just trying to preserve as much as possible. And the whole Radio Preservation Society is, is another organization you can reach out to. 
um, oh, that yeah, you get this type of advice. Yeah, yeah, you're talking about the Radio Preservation Task Force. Yes, um, yes. Of which I'm I'm a part of that. And there you go. Right. Yep. Right, um, Andreas. Do you know the story that Jennifer had a photograph of uh, of her college radio station in the '80s of of, of her working the culture station and that photograph posted prominently uh, somewhere nice on the internet made its way into the, um, the, 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 the um, research, the research, but also the, the, the hmm. artists who were creating a fake college radio station for a television uh-huh. show last year. Right. And so, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mayor of East town. Yeah. My dad, when my dad visited me in college, he took pictures of me at my college mm-hmm. radio station at Haverford College. And then when Mayor of Easttown, when the crew on that on that show on HBO, they did their research about Haverford College radio history and, mm-hmm. you know, ran across photos, including photos that my dad took. And then if you watch Mayor of Easttown, um, the record library looks, looks an awful lot nearly uh-huh. identical right, right. to the photo um, uh-huh. of me yeah, in the 1980s. And, you know, they, I think college radio stations all look the same. They smell the same and they look the same, right? They smell of stale pizza and, and possibly cigarettes back in the day. And then they got stickers all over the place, records laying all over the place. I mean, that's just a, such a, a cultural icon as well. College radio is just it's such a fascinating field. Yeah. There needs to be more work. Um, another, another interesting thing I saw Princeton Radio did this. They have a, their website. They have a whole history on their website which is really, you could click through it. You can see playlists. The issue though, with, with my project, I want to post all my shows online. I got to take the music out because of the rights and clearances issues. Right. So a lot of my stuff is based on the music. You know, one show I did was on the band music of 1979, where the general manager came in, basically said, I'm cleaning up the station. All you freaky new wave punk people, you're out or they quit. Right. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to program basically commercial radio on WRAS. Right. You either quit or you were fired. He locked up and or destroyed records. He, he so took t- the, Yeah, what yeah. was on the list? What did they want banned in 1979? Well, a lot of it was based on the names of the band, right? The Vibrators, the Sex Pistols, oh, right? So um, these, these are like just, they're, they're kind of tame punk yeah. bands, right? Um, the Damned. The Strangers. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the record he vandalized and literally he admitted it and people saw it. Um, was a Devo, the first Devo record with the song uh, Mongoloid. Because <laughs> Mongoloid, he was, that was a derogatory term. And yeah, he didn't look at Right, right. It's a little, hmm. I played it, you know, and I did a whole show based upon those records. And the whole band, and I had an interview with him. I interviewed with people that quit. There's still a lot of bad blood between those people. Because hmm. these people were the punks, the new way. They had Purple Hair and Doc Martens. And then he had the Georgia State frat boy. Like, who are these weirdos? You know, and he used the word, I want to clean up the station, which is pretty, uh, pretty intense. You're basically telling your staff that I think you're dirty, you know, but I played those songs. So the whole show was based upon the band records. Like I just mentioned, some of the groups, even like Frank Zappa, um, some other ones that are just kind of innocuous. Like, why would you ban, uh, I don't know, Willie Nelson, maybe because his music doesn't fit there. But I did a whole show on that. But that show would have to be stripped of the music. Right. And I talked to Georgia State and they said, yep, you know, even though we're a university um, and, you know, you did, you know, that we had the rights. I had the rights to play those music at the time and replay them on the HD three signal where my shows played, um, replayed. 
that would be an issue. And I have to strip all the music out. Some programs, I did the um, 2014 agreement, quote unquote, where I talked to the alumni that went through this. They're traumatized. They are still mm. dealing with the loss. It's like the death. It's like a death. I mean, it was very interesting. One of the first ladies I reached out to, she said, I know, Andreas, I'd love it. I can't. It would be like a therapy session. I'm dealing with other stuff. I just can't. But here's some other people. And when I talked to these these kids, remember, between 18 and, and 21, they were fearful. They were afraid of retribution. There was even uh, some overt or covert signs that there would be uh, you would you would have to you would pay for it if you got too involved in the protests. Don't use social media. You know, they, these these kids were traumatized and these mostly female students that are still afraid to talk about it because we don't know the genesis of this deal. I think, I think it came from the highest levels of politics in Georgia. Hmm. I, you know, the governor on down and, you know, a media professional, like I mentioned, the lady that runs GPB and then the university president, who's a very, you know, he's all about legacy, all about destroying the old and building the new and the football team, football team. Hmm. Surprisingly, they got a football team a year later, the Georgia State Panthers. Well, okay. Remember, the radio station staff was told back in the day, you were, you are our football team. You're our greatest form of PR is WRAS. Well, not anymore because there's a football team now that they have to recruit and train. And, you know, you know college football, it costs a lot. Um, you make a lot of money, but it also costs a lot. Um, but that's, that's something that changed. So these students, the 2014 agreement, it was there was no music because I like this is a painful thing to talk about. And I let them talk for 10 minutes. It was all on tape. So I just I, I played the tapes out and it was just people were like, wow, I just didn't know. Because they were they never talked about it because they were told, do not talk about it. They were advised that by by the student media director who says, if you if you they're going to take it all. If we give them this opportunity, this thing is happening now. But if you go on and protest, I'm chaining myself to the station. I'm burning the, burning the thing in effigy. They're going to take it all. Don't do that. They didn't. But they still feel this, this, like I said, this uh, retribution or trauma. Yeah, from it's, I mean, it shows. It. Yeah, it shows the passion for the station. A absolutely. And it also absolutely. shows the complexity of a deal like this. That's it's different than a complete takeover. Where where you would have right. protests, yeah. um, that it's very complicated, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I it, that's interesting, and I can see why in our conversation today, the GPB deal has come up a lot because that mm -hmm. seems to loom over much of the station's history. Having this one hundred thousand watt signal is very unusual for a college radio station, right. and that. Um, puts you in a different place as far as being vulnerable to takeovers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a blessing and a curse. And it's really interesting yeah. because Radio Survivor doubt that we've been on the on the on, we've been making these shows. Um, I'm, I'm going to estimate that we have at least half a dozen here I'll use a dozen and then that way I'm it's fuzzy enough there's been there's been many times that we've told this story mm. over and over and it's from roughly the same decade where large urban market college radio stations with 
with with strong signals in the cities where they broadcast were taken over um with with the you know with with the um the support the it was a project that was that was partially led by administrators but also there's always a there's always there's always a media professional uh what's the word a consultant somewhere mm-hmm. lurking and then oftentimes it's the public radio station that wants the signal sometimes they sell it right it goes it, it doesn't necessarily go to the NPR affiliate station but anyway we we keep telling mm-hmm. the story and yep. it's always yep. it's nice to hear that you uh were able to do the work to report and to record to tell the story as well because oftentimes there yes there there oftentimes is a radio journalist somewhere in the mix who's documented the work, who's archived it, who's told mm-hmm. the story. I think it was, um, was it, was it Rice University that there was a pretty good radio documentary about a different takeover? Oh, that had happened in a different decade. That was, uh, well, no, that was 2011. There were three stations. There was Rice, Vanderbilt, and uh, University of San Francisco. Yeah. Those three happened in 2011. And like I said, RBU sold for $3 million. Right. Jennifer you know, tried to become the archivist of record for the. For yeah. The, yeah. Well, the KUS, uh-huh. the KUSF. Because yeah. Of that. The KUSF um, situation I covered extensively, mm-hmm. you know, as, as an on the ground <laughs> right. reporter. Um, but yeah. And I covered the other, you know, these were all high profile mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there are examples beyond these three stations, but these were high profile right. um, examples and, uh, you know, got national press coverage, all of these three Actually, situations. The first year of Radio Survivor, though, the first time we were like, wait, maybe we'll do real journalism and really report a story yeah. and work on this stuff was the um, the Las Vegas UNLV, yeah, uh-huh. where there was an attempted uh, takeover that that ultimately didn't go off. I mean, one of the things you you, uh, you mentioned, Andreas, right, is sort of uh, attention, or, or at least something you saw as a deficit at WRAS is you know that there only students could be involved, and yet it's something I think that we've identified, and I know I experienced firsthand as a radio advisor. It's always a delicate balance, like I. I I tend to agree it, it it's usually an unmitigated good to have either alumni and or community members involved in a college station, but that the balance is uh, one that needs to be uh, watched rather carefully because it has also been used as a, an excuse by many administrator for getting rid of a license because they say, well, the students are not using the station. It yeah. is principally. Why should we use our, why, why should why should we we use fund, our money? To, you know, a radio yeah. clubhouse for non-students. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I was a radio as a uh, college radio advisor, it was made very clear to me by uh, my boss, uh, who uh, you know that um, to pay attention to that balance and to advise the students to make sure that not only that they do have control of their own radio station and are the majority presence there, but to make sure that also it is perceived that way, that not accidentally should uh, you know there be a especially say in the press some per- perception that the station is not actually run and primarily staffed by students because that is that would be perceived as a tipping point amongst higher ups um, who who might um, you know at times always be looking for a place to save in the balance sheet 
or uh, be rid again of of a uh, of of a potential nuisance, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. you know, from from various things. Uh, and so, well, and that and that definitely came into play at KUSF, where it was increasingly community members on the air and not so many students. So it, you know, I think it left the station in a very vulnerable place mm-hmm. where administrators weren't necessarily seeing the value to the students, even though the students mm-hmm. participating, were getting a ton out of participating at KUSF. Um, yeah. The optics were not, were not great. No. And I guided students through kind of, I would say putting, making it a recon, saying it's a reconciliation uh, would be ma- really too strongly stated, but you know, th- there could be tensions at times between uh, community volunteers and, and students mm-hmm. because community volunteers might've been at the station for 10 plus years. Most students don't mm-hmm. do a 10 year, much longer than four. You know, some do, uh, they stay on through graduate school or, or, or get, mm-hmm. uh, get their degree more slowly. And, and sometimes community volunteers will feel more ownership over the station due to their tenure of investment. And, and, uh, and want to express <laughs> that in ways that maybe aren't productive um, and want to have more control and, you know, and sort of guiding the students through making sure that they could both assert their necessary authority, but also be sensitive and understanding of, of the, of, of some long-term volunteers uh, opinions and needs in a way, you know, in a way that would be humane and also, you know, students want to call a meeting in a day, you know, for tomorrow because <laughs> they're students mm-hmm. and then you can't get somebody who has a nine to five job and a family and everything to come to a meeting. It's just, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And, and, but, it, uh, what I, what I see time and again, um, you know, is that, you know, in, in so many ways, every station is different, even though there is, we, we, we've, we've sussed out these commonalities, right. And, and they, they seem to, the, the commonalities that I see constantly are, you know, student engagement that, that, that is, that renews itself, right. That, that year after year renews itself. And, um, you know, and that what can cause that engagement is different everywhere. For some stations, it's being more freeform. For some stations, it might be having more um, structure, right? It could be having playlists and ways for students to sort of fold in and learn how, learn more the the sort of the profession of broadcasting in addition to the art of broadcasting. Um, but but ultimately, that seems that seems to be the the, the critical je ne sais quoi. And, you know, stations that are utterly student run, that could be a challenge because simply you have changes you know, students graduate and they, they can or cannot or do or are unable to pass on some of the the the, the expertise and and the the experience to to new stations coming on board. Whereas sometimes stations that are more professionally run, it might actually have professional station managers or or someone mm-hmm. can kind of be the the carrier of that legacy. I don't know. There's just, it, it, we we've just seen so many of the of these dynamics. Um, but the, the one that continuously calls itself out to me is, is you know, are students engaged? And I don't, I personally don't buy the argument that students aren't engaged because young people don't care about radio or don't care about audio. Um, I think it's like any student club or you know organization uh, engagement happens because uh, those involved get good at recruiting <laughs> and put a priority mm-hmm. on bringing in fresh 
fresh ears, fresh eyes, fresh mouths, fresh voices. Um, and, and that can be hard. It's a challenge. It's a challenge everywhere. Um, every, every, every community, every volunteer run radio station has that challenge, I think. Yeah. Well, let's face it. Young people don't like to be told by old people what to do. Sure. <laughs> it's yeah. just, I, I ran into that. Like I, I, they're like, Oh God, this guy, please. What are you going to tell us? And I was like, I gotta, gotta be cool. Fine line here. Cause you know, these are young people and they don't know and you can't tell them everything. But another fascinating thing, and this is WPRB's, uh, yeah, PRB, where they they bought the like a board of directors, didn't they buy the license from Princeton the alumni and then let the students work there? So this is an interesting dynamic. What yeah, do you think I forget. About that? Well, I forget. You know, WPRB is one of the college radio stations where the license is held by a separate nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember the origins of that. Um, There are stations that have operated like this for decades. So it's not necessarily that they bought the license. It's just part of the structure. Uh And WRVU was like that, too, where um, the license was held by this separate group. But unfortunately, in WRVU's case... Um, mm-hmm. That group decided to sell the license, even yeah. though originally this separate nonprofit was established as more of a um, freedom of speech, freedom of expression sort of ideal so that they're yeah. separate from the administration. But unfortunately, it also meant they had the power to sell the license. So it can work in your favor sometimes to have, um, <laughs> you know, to hold the license in a separate nonprofit and other mm-hmm. times not. WPRB is interesting because um, it's also a commercial license, Mm. which is, you know, increasingly unusual in college Mm -hmm. radio. They don't air commercials. Yeah, 103.3. Yeah, Yeah, they don't air commercials, but they could if they wanted to. But that also makes it more valuable on the open market, right? Mm -hmm. If they don't air commercials, but they could. Um, Amazing. Yeah, what a. I like that we're trying to together. tell this story that has you know that it's it's really almost radio survivors jobs solely in the in the in the ideas marketplace of you know in the national picture Mm -hmm. of what's happening like we've 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 it's it's been happening and it's a it's not it's not an easy story to tell or to report on Mm -hmm. right with facts um it's it's fun it's fun to talk about but it's a very complex i mean we know from history and it's uh, it's always a difficult and emotionally painful history that yeah every every station that gets fought over becomes um, uh, you know a point uh, a painful memory for all the people that went through it yeah. so going back into that digging into that you know and then it also is uh, difficult to, um, to 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 pull the threads of facts from the other you know version of events that gets and there's always the email chains that go on for days and days that mm-hmm. may or may not contain good information and i've i remember uh when i was involved in a completely different radio fight you know fights over radio stations it was impossible to get newspaper reporters to report the story because they didn't have they didn't have time to get yeah. into it. Uh, but, so. but here's an, here's an idea, and I want to get your, your feedback on this. And it's, we're still podcasting, if that is okay. Yeah. So it's that um, NPR, and that this is what needs more study too. Is why is NPR buying all, what 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 
NPR, which is public radio, which is considered, you know, a higher degree of educational people listening to it, because it's not AM talk or anything. They're the ones taking all these college radio stations. Yeah. Well, right? not not NPR. Not, I know. No, I know. I know the local affiliates Each are local turning them into right. a local affiliate. NPR is that they, they're making their stand on Each, jazz and classical. Yeah. For what? That's who listen. Well, it's principally right. not jazz. And, it's princi- well, it's principally not jazz yeah. and classical. Almost all the time, it's news talk. Uh, it's, it's news the, talk is in growth. All things considered, yeah, continues to be well, in growth. Some, no, yes, yes, yeah. but there is the jazz and class. They, they, oh my God, there's a classical show. Who cares? It's dead. And People some, are, yeah, and some of right. them are starting up stations that are. You know, that are focused on younger people with more adventurous music. Right. Bring um, them to the table. That's well, going to be your new audience, not the, not of, the 55 well, plus people. They're dying. Right. Yeah. Of, your audience is dying. It's literally dying. <laughs> let's get that straight. The NPR audience is dying. Jazz music, let's face I'm from New well, Orleans. Then, then, what, it's, it's really not, a, uh, honestly, it, it, jazz music as a public radio format is almost entirely dead. Um, there's so few stations left. The stations okay. that are doing these expansions are not expanding with music. Right. Um, it, increasingly, uh, the, the KUSF story was was a classical station, but maybe that's an outlier. It's an outlier because it's it is yeah. it is it is an outlier. Um, KTRU was also classical. Two outliers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mean in, as, at college stations? Oh no, I mean we mean as far as yeah, the yeah, entities that right. were when you know yeah. and in. In a lot of these cases, it's... But now KTRU um, is already how many years ago? Yeah, and KTRU now has their own low-power FM signal. Right. And, and yeah. is it still classical? I mean, I'm, you know... Well, the license that license was sadly sold again, so yeah. right. um, well, that's, I, I haven't kept track of that's, I what think it is now. That is something that... I, we, you know, it's not 2011 done, anymore. Uh, you know, is is, is a lot yeah, of the right. point I'll make. Yeah, we've, exactly. We've exactly. done a lot of episodes about this. We have not had the resources to 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 ever yeah. like go back to our good mm-hmm. ideas from many years ago and and really try to report on them and dig into them. But one of the things that came up at one point, and I don't remember now exactly which episode, which interview it was, where we hit on this, but it does seem as though the way that the radio landscape has been structured, it's it's two of the underdogs in the story of U.S. media fighting over the smallest slice of the pie mm-hmm. that's available. Yeah. So because the radio has been given this, um, you know, and we've used the real estate metaphor quite a lot, because mm-hmm. it's yeah. such a limited resource and because this one neighborhood for non-commercial is, is smaller than... Than well, the commercial I mean, that, yeah, and the, except the fact that that public radio stations are market leaders in many markets across the country, lead the ratings. So, but when they so, want to grow, they the the best opportunity for them to grow is to eat up a college radio station with a big signal. When to create they, a network, to create a network. Right. that's why. GPB yeah, absolutely. Yes, it is because because the commercial yeah. stations are, are themselves too expensive. Yeah. Um, so if, yeah. And, if and this if is the, also you know. Um, Religious radio stations right, right. do the it's same thing. The marketplace, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, if, if the radio landscape had been structured differently from the get-go, then maybe the the public radio station that wants to grow wouldn't have to eat the college radio station. Sure. Right. Yeah. Right. So but, I'm not defending but, it. I'm just trying, you know, yeah, by any no, measure, no, just no. really just trying to kind of uh, 
you know, narrow into what's what is happening uh, sort of today um, and not even what is happening, you know, 10 years ago, even if the wounds are still fresh. Um, it's it's the, yeah. they're all sort of uh, right. Well, the damage was targets. done, right? Because right, now, and we haven't we haven't been covering covering the most recent examples. So, oh boy, you know That's we have these bad. 2011 examples mm-hmm. that we covered extensively on Radio Survivor. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know what exactly is happening in 2021? That's something we haven't been reporting on as much. So, like Purdue it, didn't Purdue get rid of their station? It could be different. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, but I you know if I said that if NPR flipped their format to college radio or college rock it'd be way successful more, more so I think, because that's my generation. And I'm not a jazz and classical guy like my parents are, you know, and even if they just, even WRS just flip their format to just play nothing but college, like classic college rock. But then what are you doing? Right. We're also, this is luckily radio survivor. It doesn't worry too much about the NPR affiliates all over the United States, which again are not, there's no, there's no centralized uh, boardroom brain. It's all individual stations run by individual. Well, there's a financing organization called Public Radio Capital, um, which helps to underwrite the uh, purchase of these stations. Mm. But it's it but, is a separate, independent organization. It is not not affiliated with NPR. It is not run by NPR, right? So again, it's, we have a very, um, unlike anywhere else in the world, just about, we have a very uh, heterogeneous, you know, yeah. public radio organization. Yeah. But luckily yeah. we're not current, you know. But once, current. once again, what's interesting about the Atlanta situation, they already had an NPR station. It was called WABE. They're basically sometimes they play the same exact yeah. story at the same exact time. Yeah, they play all things. Cons- they're they're forced yes. to play all things considered. At and ABE's been around a lot longer than GPB. I mean, they, they're the historic Atlanta station, the NPR station, Atlanta W. So what does GP? What? Why? That's where people confuse. Yeah. Why do you need another NPR station? Yeah, yeah, it definitely sounds like a story that you know still. I want to yeah. would could could use more reporting. Always, I want to, and you know, someone will do the job someday, and hopefully, they can uh, sure. use some kind of computer to dig through our archives to pull out. Yeah, well, I use little... your archive. I use your archives for my my thesis too. Oh, that's good. And uh, on some of the reporting you did about WRAS and these past attempts, Jennifer's work, Jennifer's hard work. Yes, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, that, I, you know. I, I was looking forward to a time where where the the Google monster can actually read the content of our podcast conversations right. so that right. so that we yep. can pull out the, the the good the good parts for that story uh from the uh ten thousand hours of of uh yeah. unstructured well, talk that we've recorded. I wanna right. Andreas I, I don't want to lose you before we talk about this shortwave radio station you were Oh that's yeah. right. You're yeah. gonna ask that about about that again. Uh W R N O Worldwide was the station. Yeah. Like I said, the general manager, Joe Costello was a ham radio enthusiast. He loved shortwave too. He, I don't know how he got the license to operate. Like I said, the only non-government, non-religious, non-commercial yeah. station in the world. So I, he's so he's independently wealthy. <laughs> he, he, he's no longer with us, but yes, he was. He was. Yeah, Cause, cause that's, um, that's the story, right? His shortwave costs way too much to put on the air. That's why governments have to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, whatever the signal was, he got it, and it was it was housed in the same building as the FM station. It's just it was basically the FM production room, 
turned into a studio. And uh, it was it was formatted. Like I said, they had jazz programs produced in-house using, you know, getting the New Orleans artists to come in and record something in the place of music. They would have CBS, like I said, CBS News cut-ins or even CBS News uh, docs of some sort. So there was a newsy component to it. And then, uh, you know, regular DJ shifts. And what, you know, what that were done you by, what's that? What, what year did you work there, may I ask? 86 and 87. That was my first radio gig. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was cool. I mean, that's my first job at CNN was CNN International because just the ability, the, just the sheer ability to broadcast your show around the world, what you are putting on TV right now, that font you wrote is now being seen in 160 countries. That's cool, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's what that's so intriguing to me as a, as a journalist. I'm like, wow, as a producer, TV, TV news producer, to do that. I mean, that was fantastic. And I got that from shortwave. And because you would get these QSL cards coming and you'd write them back because it was a collecting. Yeah, so so QSL is, is basically a reception report from people who uh, from from people around the world, basically. Yes. And, and they're, they're very faint. They're like postcards. Yeah. They're color. I mean, they can have logos. They could even from the Radio Sofia in Bulgaria. I mean, you get these you know, government and then you get personal people that did it, too. And hands, hands would send in their, uh, you know, they send in their QSL cards. And just you'd write them back, you know, that WRNO Worldwide had their own QSL card and just seeing just, you know, where it was coming from. Awesome. You yeah, know, do, it was just, wow. yeah. Do you remember some of the countries that you got the cards from? Well, a lot of European countries, a lot of Brits, um, a lot in Australia. Um, mm-hmm. I do remember uh, Zimbabwe and some African uh, countries. And uh, even in the U.S., um, there was, you know, there was some some people picking it up. Not so much. Well, I guess, yeah, there was some Japanese as well. Those are the ones I remember. Like I said, I've got a whole box of these things, which I will never throw away. I just, I think they're just cool. Amazing. Um, yeah. It is amazing. I was just like, wow, that is so neat. Well, and then the romance. Who knew? The romance. Yeah. I'm, I'm dying right now. I'm over, I'm over sentimentalizing <laughs> the idea of there being an international radio station coming out of New Orleans, the place where yeah. American jazz music mm-hmm. was born and a, 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 a an international radio station de- that you're telling you're saying it was not necessarily devoted to jazz but see i'm overdoing it now getting schmaltzy to 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 play new orleans jazz music for the planet yeah. uh on, on a radio that's a very that's a very cool radio station i i had not really uh wrapped my head around their story before yeah and this is the uh like a, the 80s the mid 80s so you had the go-go's and walk like an Egyptian and the bangles. <laughs> it wasn't all jazz. <laughs> no, no, that, that regular format. They'd be playing that kind of. Uh, it was a rock yeah, station. Kind of, yeah, rock okay. station. I overdid yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm writing a novel. But I, I would sneak in like big audio dynamite or things like that that I knew were that had to, just a great message, you know, mm-hmm. about peace and love and all that stuff. Because you know, you're you know, you got the world at your fingertips. Why not be positive about it, right? Um, that's something journalists, you know, we dwell on human misery. We dwell on catastrophe, murder, fire, political corruption, death, destruction. That's we, that's how we make our money. Yeah. You know, that's not good news. Good news doesn't sell. That's been proven. Um, but to be able to do something positive at that station was just so neat. You know, I told, I met Yoko Ono in New Orleans. She was doing a John Lennon, um, exhibit mm. of his, when his drawings first came out. 
in the 80s. Um, she was at a gallery on Royal Street. And my mom and I went, and I said, you know, I work at this radio station, shortwave station. I always end my show with, let's all work for world peace. And my she was like, whoa, that is so cool. Call me, call me. Wow. And I, you know, I was, I was like, wow, that's Yoko Ono. I mean, that's totally played into that because that was my thing. You know, I always end, let's all work for world peace because, you know, I, the Berlin Wall came down a couple of years later. So did you and have Yoko Ono as a guest on your show? I didn't. You know. ah. She did look, she was, a, she did do WRAS. She was on that, ah, she was on that good. show, uh, on that thing. Look, Brass had become a, a revolving door of artists. I mean, every artist of the 80s, the 70s and 80s and 90s came through that station to do interviews because their music wasn't being played anywhere. Right. I mean, the alums of the 70s told me Genesis routed their tour through Atlanta uh, because they kept playing, um, I don't I, I don't remember, the, the record was a mid-70s Genesis record. Only play, only place playing it, they, let's go to Atlanta. We got an audience, right? Then mm. you've got the whole REM Athens scene happening, you know, 60 miles away. Right. Rass was the first to play Rock Lobster, you know? And they were the first to play uh, Radio Free uh, Radio Free huh. Europe so um, on a on a uh, cassette tape. So part of the story of because because when I when I hear the you know b- before Radio Survivor college radio was an REM yeah. song, and so mm-hmm. that sounds like this radio station in Georgia um, has has a significant role to yeah, play. Yeah, I, I spoke to. Uh, 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 I guess, yeah, Michael Stipe. And he told me the rise of college radio coincided with the rise of REM. Plain and simple. Yeah. That when their first record came out, which was 81, they just celebrated 50 years of that Radio for Europe um, record, that he said, we were like mercenaries. We go into a college town, the audience was there, we play, we had had people in the crowd, we'd move on. They did the college circuit because that's where their audience was. Right, you said 50 years, it's not 50 yet. No, no, you're right. You're right. It's 40. Don't do that to me. (laughs) It's 40. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. It's 40 years, right? Um, And I just got, they just reissued it on cassette too, which is very cool. Yeah, how fun. Um, REM did. (laughs) The single, right, on the Hip Tone, Hip Tone Records, uh, which is Johnny, he lives lives in Atlanta. The guy that, uh, the swimming pool cues, the pylon, these were all being produced by people in Atlanta that would record in Athens. Because there's this whole rivalry between Athens and Atlanta. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, a- Atlanta thinks Athens is a backwater. Athens thinks uh, Atlanta is just a bunch of dumb people. Like, they're not artists. You know, and, and UGA is more of an art school. You know, look, SCAD is in Atlanta now. So I think that's all, you know, kind of water under the bridge. But they, I mean, they played these songs. And that's the economic part of the story that I was fascinated in. You yeah. know, that this is a whole economic transaction here that a lot of money was being made and the students weren't getting paid. Yeah, they got perks, free tickets, t-shirts, some records, but they were making money. But it, what a gold mine. I mean, so then 99X came in, 90, you know, 92. In New Orleans, it was uh, the Zephyr came on the same, the modern rock, modern rock, and that was all the soup dragons and all that kind of, kind of a little bit watered down music. Also the Smashing Pumpkins, the Pixies, great, great college radio bands that started. Um, but that's where Rass, I mean, that's where they made their mark. Soup dragons. 
the soup dragons. Yes, I remember. Uh, well, thank you, Andreas. Uh, we're we're as we we're clocking in on about two hours here, so yeah. we think we <laughs> yeah. thank we you so much for your time. Right, well, <laughs> right. Thank you so much, Andreas. Yeah, I, I didn't I get to ask talk. about what it was like to work at CNN. What year did you start CNN, Andreas? Uh, nineteen ninety six through oh twenty nineteen. Yeah, I mean it was. You know, look, you're. You know, they often say uh, journalism is the uh, first draft of history. Sitting in that chair, producing a newscast of nine eleven, Katrina, the Arab Spring, uh, yeah. th- hundreds of school shootings, hurricanes. Uh, I mean, it was just. It's just you intense. Work, you worked out of Atlanta you know? the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's the head. It was the headquarters. Just that, that once again that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just to be able to do that and tell these stories about, look, we, I told a story to Germany. We killed off Gabby Giffords, the lady that was shot in Arizona. We said she was dead. She wasn't dead. Oh, yeah. uh, we had to go back and correct uh, that whole, how that all unveiled itself is fascinating. I'd love to tell that story, but you know, we have to wrap up here. Wrong podcast. <laughs> I know, but that whole, yeah, it's just that, that, that I love that. That's why I'm into history too. Cause I have lived history, so to speak. My wife tells me that. So when I'm in the in a station like Rast, I'm holding these records. I'm I'm seeing it. I'm feeling it. You know, and I'm like, I got it because I'm, I've already kind of got experience with this kind of identifying media history. And look, I'd love to do a book. I'd like to do a book on this. It should be expanded to more stations. You're absolutely right. History is important. Capture this stuff because maybe if you did, maybe if Rast had this thesis in 2014, somebody could have thrown it on the table and say, no effing way. You're going to get rid of half of the station. Look at what this station means. Yeah. Eat it. It's all right here. Maybe things would have been different. I don't know. And I think that's important for these stations to document why they are important. And that, you know, at least the information's out there. That's my final, that's my final words. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. That's a, that's a great place to end. I hope that gets into the radio show. I know yeah, I'm going to have to complicated for Eric. I'm going to have to cut that into the to the like out I'll I'll end the radio show with like and this is how the podcast ends if you tune into Radio Survivor. No, that's a good tease. <laughs>